I talked to one of the people that I was working with who had a, like a vision for retirement. I said, well, what's your vision for retirement? Well, I see myself in the beach, you know, some tropical country drinking margaritas. And I thought, uh, first, that's not a plan. That's a travel <laughs> poster. It's like, okay, let's, let's walk through this. All right, so you go down to this tropical country and you go sit on the beach and you have a margarita. It's like, okay, well, how many margaritas? Like 10? <laughs> okay, so you're gonna do that. What you're gonna do that for six months? You'll be dead. Yeah, well, you'll be this like pathetic, sunburned, like fat. Yeah, yeah. unhappy, yeah. hungover, cirrhotic. In pain. Yeah, yeah. It's like that's Dehydrated. your vision. So uh, how long can you have a margarita on a beach? Like maybe you can do that once every six months for like ten minutes, something like that. <laughs> it's not a vision. It's like this sixteen-year-old fantasy of yes. paradise. It's like well, yes. and it just doesn't work out. So yeah, and and the thing that the thing is is that the thing that sustains people through life really is the lifting of a worthwhile burden. It's something like that, yeah. and it's partly because we're social animals, right? It's like we're evolved to be useful to the people around us because they're much more likely to let us live if we're like that. Yeah. So, and and. It's been very fun talking to, especially talking to young men about this. It's like, well, and that's the other thing too, is I think the world, the world is full of darkness, let's say. And we could say each of us have a little bit of light. And if we release that light, if we let it shine properly, Christ, it's too cliched to go on with in some sense, but the world is a lesser place if you do not reveal from within yourself what you have to reveal. And the fact that the world is a lesser place actually turns out not to be trivial. Like if you aren't everything you could be, more people will die, more people will suffer, more evil will be unconstrained, more tyranny will reign, more chaos will remain chaotic and dangerous, all of that. Do you mean this by this in the sense of like the old proverb of the wings of a butterfly fluttering become a hurricane? It's, it's, it's something similar to that, but it can even be more local. It's like your family is more messed up than it could be if you were less messed up than you are. Right. So if you just got your act together, like 10% more, your family would be 1% better. Right. It's like, well, do it. And that would ripple off into that, the oh, people uh, that they inter yes. interact yes. with. Yes, and, and, ripple, and it ripples fast. Yes. That's the other thing that's so cool is that, like, people think, well, there's 7 billion of us, and each of us is just this separate dust moat, like, floating in the cosmos, and what the hell difference does it make what you do anyways? It's like, that is not how we're connected. It's like, you're the center of a network. And you know, well, you know way more people than this. But let's say, typically, you know a you're going to know a thousand people in your life. Well enough to have an impact on them. Okay. And each of those thousand people is going to know a thousand people. So you're one step from a million and two steps from a billion. And we are networked, technically. That, that's how human interactions work. And so when you do something that you shouldn't do, it's worse than you think. And when you do something that you should do, it's better than you think. And so you think, well, this is why I've been telling people, well, clean up your room. It's like, well, your room is actually networked too. It's not that easy to clean up your room, to set it. So you want your room to be set up so that when you walk in there, it tells you to be better than you generally are. It's organized. It's got direction. Everything's in its place. You try to do that in a chaotic household. You know, I've watched people do this because I, I had students do these sorts of things as assignments. I'd say, look... Pick a small moral goal, clean up your room, and just write down what happens as a consequence. So maybe these are students in a chaotic household. The whole place is a bloody mess. No one's taking any responsibility for anything. And so they decide they're going to start to clean up their room. And then the people in the household notice. Well, the first thing they do is get pissed off. It's like, who do you think you are? Like, you think you're better than us? You, 
Like, why do you think this is worthwhile? Who made, who died and made you God? All of that. So just by trying to organize this little part of their life, they immediately run into the people whose actions they're casting in a dim light by trying to improve themselves to some degree. They might have to have like a thorough war in their household to be allowed to do something as simple as keep the room orderly. They find out very rapidly that A, that's way more difficult than it sounds, and B, that the consequences of it are far more far-reaching than people think. Maybe part of it is, is that like everything around you is full of potential. Everything. Maybe more potential than you could ever possibly utilize. And so maybe all you have is this little rat hole of a room in some rundown place in the world. It's like, fix it up. There's more there than you think. See what happens if you fix it up. And you'll fix yourself up simultaneously because you have to get disciplined in order to fix up the room. And then you have a fixed up room and you'll be a more fixed up person. It's like, you think that nothing will happen as a consequence of that? Another client I worked with was having a hard time putting his kid to bed at night. And so we, we did the arithmetic. It's like, well, I'm fighting with my kid for 45 minutes a night trying to get him to go to bed. Okay, so let, let's analyze that. All right, so what does that mean? Well, it means that both of you end the day upset. That's not so good, because why would you want that? It means that you're spending 45 minutes fighting when you could spend 20 minutes doing something positive, like reading to him, say. It means that you don't get to spend that time with your wife, so she's not very happy with you, plus you're annoyed because you don't see her, plus you blame it on the kid because he's the proximal cause. It's like, that's pretty damn ugly. And then, and then let's do the arithmetic. It's like seven days a week, 45 minutes a day, let's call that five hours. 20 hours a week, 240 hours in a year, six, you're spending a month and a half of work weeks fighting with your four-year-old son. You think you're going to like him? You don't like anyone you spend a month and a half a year fighting with. It's a bad idea. Fix it. It's important. Get him to bed. Make it peaceful. You do it like these things that repeat every single day. That's a motif in this book too. Your life isn't margaritas on a beach in, in Jamaica. That happens now and then. Those are exceptions. Your life is how your wife greets you at the door when you come home every day. Because that's like 10 minutes a day. Your life is how you treat each other over the breakfast table. Because that's an hour and a half or an hour every single day. You get those mundane things right. Those things you do every day. You concentrate on them and you make them pristine. It's like you got 80% of your life put together. These little things that are right in front of us. They're not little, that's the first thing. They are not little, and they're hard to set right. And if you set them right, it has a rippling effect. And, and fast, too. Way faster than people think. One of the things I've been suggesting to people is that they pick something difficult to do. I read this, this funny little paragraph by Kierkegaard. It was written about 1840, and he was thinking about his role as a student and writer. And he was a student and writer forever, you know. He never really had a career apart from that. And he said that he wasn't one of these people who was capable of inventing something wonderful to make life easier for everyone, like so many people were doing, you know, during the Industrial Revolution. He said, well, maybe I'm one of these people whose benefit to society will be that I will make things more difficult for everyone because there will come a time when what people want not, they don't want ease, they want difficulty instead. And I think, well, that is what people want. That is what they want. You think, well, I want an easy, happy life. It's like, no, actually, that isn't what you want. I think you what want people a, want is things that are difficult that they can overcome. Yeah, right. That's right. They want an optimal challenge. Well, That's there's a, a whole feeling. different thing. 
when you overcome something, when you do something difficult, whether it's, I mean, I've never written a book, but I assume when you write a book, when you're done writing that book, there's a great feeling of accomplishment because it's very difficult to do. That feeling of a comp, for me, it's like when I put together a comedy special mm -hmm. or when I, you know, it, it, just anything that's difficult. There's a, a feeling like I did it. I yeah. did it. Yeah, well, one of the mysteries is why that feeling exists. You know, it's a genuine, it's not a trivial thing, that. It's to say, I did something difficult and that was worthwhile. Basically, what you're saying to yourself is, well, there was a lot of suffering attendant on that, along with the just general suffering of life, but it turned out that was worth it. That's what you want. It's like you want that sense that you're engaged in something that's worth it. I'm not a like a casual optimist about these sorts of things. I mean, one of the things I do in 12 Rules for Life is lay out the rationale that drives people like the Columbine High School killers. Because I understand that rationale. I've studied it for a long time. I know why they did what they did. And they have a powerful argument, but it's wrong. But you don't, there's no sense in showing how it's wrong before showing that it's a powerful argument. Like, like life is suffering. There is lots of malevolence. It's no wonder that people want to bring being itself to a halt. They want to take revenge on it. It's not surprising. It's the wrong way of going about it. The right way is, it's akin to the sorts of things that you were just observing. Is you take on a difficult task that pushes you past where you are already. And you, you succeed in it and you get this sense that, yes, that was worthwhile. It's like, that's what you want. You want to live in that place where things are worthwhile. That's paradise on earth. That's what that is. And it isn't some happy little place where, you know, someone's feeding you peeled grapes. That isn't what it is. It's, it's more like... It's more like victory on the honorable battlefield or something like that. If you only know how to behave, you're just a domesticated house cat or a, or a lap dog. Yeah. You, have to be, you have to push beyond the persona and that's what the integration of the shadow does from the Jungian perspective. It's like to pull that monster that's been edited out of you pull that back in and to allow that to reveal itself within your within your increasingly sophisticated way of being and then you're not just a persona you can't escape from your persona unless you can say no like here's an, here's an example from popular culture um, in the Harry Potter series Harry Potter is obviously the hero of the story He's touched by malevolence, right? The only reason he can stand up against evil is because there's some evil in him that, yeah. that he's incorporated, essentially. Well, that's exactly right. And the, the persona, the, the, if you're a persona, then you're an obedient citizen. But the problem with being an obedient citizen is that if the society tells you to march the Jews off to the death camp, for example, and you're obedient, then that's what you'll do. And it doesn't, it isn't like society is civilized, and then all of a sudden, you're performing some act of atrocity. That isn't how it works. It's like you're you're obedient citizen, and then you're asked to violate your conscience a little bit. Yeah. And you you have to because you don't have anything other than that persona, and so and that's obedience. And so a little more obedience is demanded. And you say, okay, well, and then you're a little bent right? because the society is becoming a little bent, and then you're a little weaker. And then the, you're asked to violate your conscience a little bit more, and you think. Well, there's a little less of me and the pressure's on a little more and I could have said no before, but I didn't. So you say yes again, then you say yes again. And then, and then you have a society where one third of the population is informing on the other two thirds. It's hell. It's like, well, so how do you say no? 
Well, that's the shadow. It's like, and that's, see, the reason that the video I did when, about Bill C-16 and its compelled speech provisions went viral was because I said no. I didn't say it casually. What I meant was, there isn't anything that you can do to me that I can imagine that will force me to utter the words that you want me to utter. Nothing. And I meant it. And when I made the video, I think people could actually tell that I meant it. And so I took this abstract problem and made it concrete. I said, no, that's not happening. And so, and that's part of the incorporation of the shadow. But in this regard, the shadow is actually benevolent, not malevolent. Well, once it's incorporated, yeah, yeah well, that's the thing. Yeah. And, and, and I don't know what to make of that in its entirety, because it, it sort of means that if you, it means something like, because one of the old metaphysical problems is why would God allow evil into the world? I think, well, maybe God didn't allow evil into the world. Maybe God allowed the possibility of evil into the world. That's different. And maybe the world with the possibility of evil is actually a better world than the world without the possibility of evil. It's something like that, you know, in that maybe a man is better when he's a dangerous man who's being good than he would be if he was just a good man who wasn't capable of being dangerous. And I believe that because the best men that I've ever met are very dangerous men. You don't mess with them. So, and you know that as soon as you meet Do you think weak men can be virtuous? Because, no. Because I think that when you're weak, let's say that signals that you don't have the options to sin. Right. Which is something that creates resentment, and resentment creates corruption. Mm -hmm. So in this sequence, do you think that someone without teeth or without the options to sin can be... Can, can be, be good. See, that's a, that's a real theological question, right? Because the question you're asking is, and this is tied up with the idea of free will and evil, can a person who doesn't have the option to be evil be good? And I would say no. So maybe that's the reason that metaphysically speaking, yeah. you know, and I don't know where you are when you're speaking metaphysically exactly, but the question of why is there evil in the world is a constant question. It's like, it's possible that without the possibility of evil, there cannot be good. Good requires the possibility of evil. And, and maybe good is so good that the fact that it requires the possibility of evil is acceptable. Maybe it's even desirable. I mean, you know, you, you kind of end, end up on the edge of your knowledge when talking about such things, but it seems to me to be right. Yeah. And it, and it seems to me right, be right in a lived sense, you know, like um, I met Jocko Willink, he's a good example. I mean, Willink was the commander in Ramada, I think. And, you know, you can say what you want about American military involvement, it has nothing to do with that. Really, not not at this level of analysis. He's a tough guy. I follow him on Twitter. Yeah, so you know. He, he gets up every morning at 5.30, 4.30. He's a tough guy. He's a, he said, he told me quite straightforwardly, that he was one of those kids that as an adolescent could have gone either way, right? Yeah. He could have been highly successful street criminal. Yeah, probably. Right? But he, yeah, probably. Well, you can see it. But he decided not to do that. He's psychophysiologically intimidating. He's a big guy. You can tell he knows how to use it. And you can tell he used it. Yeah. But as far as I can tell, he's a good person. And that's actually, all of that capacity for mayhem is part of what makes him a good person. Yeah. And people know that. That's why they're listening to him. Yeah. And that, like I said, the other people I've met who, the men I've met who are good men, they're all like that. They're all dangerous. They're all dangerous. Yeah. Have they all been not good men before? Or is that not part of becoming a good man? 
I would say they've certainly all done things that they, that well, you know, adolescents break rules, right? And healthy adolescents break rules. And so then the question is, well, how extreme does the rule breaking become? Well, it would vary from person to person, but I would say that most of them, not all of them, but most of them were more on the end of the rule breaking spectrum, right? They broke more rules than normal but they clued in, you know, and decided, explored that, and then decided, no, that's, yeah. that's not, that's better than cowardice. Yeah. It's better than weakness, but it's not as good as what's good. Unless you can think the way that an evil person thinks, then you're defenseless against them, because they'll go places you can't imagine, and then they win. And so the best man I've met, it was interesting even when I was in junior high and high school, because most of my friends dropped out, you know, by the time they were grade 10, thereabouts. And a lot of them were guys who developed physically, they're pretty powerful, and they're just damn sick of putting up their hand to go to the bathroom. It's like, you know, they're not doing that anymore. One of my friends got kicked out when he sort of challenged the gym teacher, you know, physically. And the gym teacher, he could do an iron cross. He was a tough guy, and so it was no trivial matter for my friend to stand up to him, but he got expelled anyways. But, you know, I noticed that it wasn't... It, it was often the kids whose character I admired that either quit or got expelled, and they were the tougher guys who were just sick and tired of following rules that didn't take into account their character, and then they'd go off and work in the oil rigs or whatever, and you could do that in Alberta at that time. That was really hard work, you know, so it wasn't like they were necessarily taking the easy path, but like a harmless man is not a good man. A good man is a very, very dangerous man who has that under voluntary control, and you know, you also see that um, like one of the central <clears throat> female stories, let's say, um, if the hero archetype is the central male story. There are variants of hero archetypes that are relevant to women, and one of them is Beauty and the Beast. And you know, Beauty isn't interested in the guy who isn't the beast. She's interested in the guy who's the beast, and that's exactly right, but he, she's interested in the guy who's the beast that can be civilized and disciplined, right, and who can use that in the service, well, let's say, of a family. One of the most amazing things that I discovered this year, or stumbled upon, was I was puzzling over a line in the New Testament, which I've always been curious about, because it never sat right with me. The meek shall inherit the earth. And I found out that the word meek, meek either doesn't mean now what it meant when people first translated the text, or it was a mistranslation, either way. But because meek sounds like powerless and harmless, it's something like that, right? But what meek actually means, it's the derivation of a word, it's the translation of a word that meant something more like those who have swords and know how to use them but keep them sheathed. I thought, oh yes, that's exactly it, the world. Um, the, those who have swords and know how to use them but choose to keep them sheathed will inherit the world. It's like, yes, exactly right, exactly right. There's this old story in King Arthur where the knights go off to look for the Holy Grail, which is either the cup that Christ drank out of at the Last Supper or the cup into which the blood 
that gushed from his side was poured when he was crucified. The stories vary, but it's, it's basically a, a holy object, like the phoenix in some sense, that's representation, a representation of transformation. So it's, a, it's an ideal, and so King Arthur's knights, who sit at a round table because they're all roughly equal, go off to find the most valuable thing, and, they, and where do you look for the most valuable thing when you don't know where it is? Well, each of the knights looks at the forest surrounding the castle and enters the forest at the point that looks darkest to him. And that's a good thing to understand because the gateway to wisdom and the gateway to the development of personality, which is exactly the same thing, is precisely through the porthole, portal that you do not want to climb through. And the reason for that is actually quite technical. This is a union presupposition too, is that, well, there's a bunch of things about you that are underdeveloped, and a lot of those things are because there's things you've avoided looking at because you don't want to look at them, and there's parts of you you've avoided developing because it's hard for you to develop those parts. And so, it's, it's by virtual necessity that what you need is where you don't want to look because that's where you've kept it. And so, and that's why there's, you know, an idiosyncratic element of it for everyone. Your particular place of enlightenment and terror is not going to be the same as yours, except that they're both places of enlightenment and terror. So they're equivalent at one level of analysis and, and different at another. So anyways, back to fiction and, 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 and what it does, it, it distills truth and it, it, it produces characters that are composites. And the more they become composites, the more they approximate a mythological character. And so they become more and more universally true and more and more approximating religious deities. But the problem with that is they become more and more distant from individual experience. And so with literature, there's this very tight line where you need to make the character more than merely human but not so much of a god that, you know, one of the things that happened to Superman in the 1980s, Superman started out, he's got a heavenly set of parents, but by the way, and an earthly set of parents, and he's an orphan like Harry Potter, very common theme, is that when Superman first emerged, he could only jump over buildings, you know, and maybe he could stop a locomotive, but by the time the 1980s rolled around, like he could juggle planets and, you know, swallow hydrogen bombs and, you know, he could do anything. Well, people stopped buying the Superman comics because how interesting is that? It's like something horrible happens and Superman deals with it. And, and something else horrible happens and Superman deals with it. And it's like, that's dull. He turned into such an archetype. He was basically the omniscient, omnipresent, um, om omnipotent God. And that's no fun. It's like God wins, and then God wins again, and then again God wins, and you know. So then they had to weaken him in different ways with kryptonite, you know. So green kryptonite kind of made him sick, and red kryptonite, I think, kind of mutated him, if I remember correctly. And anyways, they had to introduce flaws into his character so that there could be some damn plot. And that's something to think about, you know. There's a deep existential lesson in that, in that your being is limited and, and flawed and, and fragile. Um, you're like the genie, which is genius in the little tiny, in the little tiny uh, lamp, you know, this immense potential, but constrained in this tiny little living space, as Robin Williams said when he played the genie in Aladdin. But the fact that you have limitations 
means that the plot of your life is the overcoming of those limitations and that if you didn't have limitations well there wouldn't be a plot and maybe there would be no life and so that's part of the reason why perhaps you have to accept the fact that you're flawed and insufficient and and live with it and consider it a precondition for being it's at least a reasonable it's a reasonable idea one of the main characters is the country the known the explored territory we went over that a bit and it always has two elements i mean your country is your greatest friend and your worst enemy you know because it squashes you into conformity and demands that you act in a certain manner and reduces your individuality to that element that's tolerated by everyone else and it it constrains your potential in a single direction and so it's really tyrannical but at the same time it provides you with a, a place to be and all of the benefits that have accrued as a result of the actions of your ancestors and all the other people that you're associated with so there's the good tyrant or the bad tyrant and the good king and those are archetypal figures and that's because they're always true and they're always true simultaneously you know which is partly why i object to the notion of the patriarchy because it's a mythology it's the it's the what do you call that it's the apprehension of a mythological trope which is that of the evil tyrant without any appreciation for the fact that the archetype actually has two parts and the other part is the wise king and you know you can tell an evil tyrant story about culture no problem but it's one-sided and and that's very dangerous because you don't want to forget all the good things that you have while you're criticizing all the ways that things are in error that's a lack of gratitude and it's a lack of wisdom and it's it's founded in resentment and it's it's very dangerous uh, both personally and socially I told you that Captain Hook is a tyrant because he's got this crocodile chasing him and the crocodile has a clock in its stomach and that's death. It's like obviously, right? Tick 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 tick. And it's a crocodile and it's under the water and it's already got a taste of him, so he's being chased around by death and that makes him terrified and resentful and and cruel and bitter and so he's a tyrant. And he wants to wreak havoc everywhere and then Peter Pan, of course, looks at captain hook and thinks why the hell should i grow up and to be a tyrant and sacrifice all the potential of childhood and the answer to that is the potential sacrifices itself if you don't utilize it as you mature and you just end up a 40-year-old lost boy which is a horrifying thing to behold it's almost as if you're the corpse of a child the living corpse of a child because who the hell wants a 6-year-old 40-year-old you're a little on the stale side by that point and not the world's happiest individual so you know your potential is going to disappear because you age anyways and so you might as well shape that potential in a particular direction and at least become something no matter how limited rather than nothing well so let's talk about tyrants well not only are they mythological figures but they exist and they tend to be deified i mean stalin was a, for all intents and purposes god the father in soviet russia although he was pretty much only the worst elements of old testament god who was you know constantly smiting people and 
and wiping out populations and doing all sorts of things that seemed to be quite nasty. But um, nonetheless, you know, people worshipped him in many ways and, and uh, he's a representation of just exactly what goes wrong when things really go wrong, when people stop paying attention and when they all lie. Because one of the things that characterized the communist state was that no one ever got to say anything they actually believed, ever. And that was partly because one out of three people was an informer, which meant if you had a family of six people, two of them were informing on the government about you, and that included your own children. And, you, and if you were an informer, you were often amply rewarded by the state, so that if you lived in an overcrowded apartment building with three families in the same flat, and you informed on you know, the woman down the hall that you didn't like, she got shif shipped off to the old concentration camp and you got her apartment. And so that was a lovely society and it only killed about 30 million people between 1919 and 1959. So that's what happens when the archetypal structure gets tilted badly when people forget that they have a responsibility to fulfill as citizens, as awake citizens who are capable of stating the truth. and the archetype shifts so there's nothing left of the great father except the tyrant. You change the world you live in phenomenologically, psychologically, by changing what you aim at. And the reason for that is that you can't see much of the world. You, you just, there just isn't enough of you. You have to ignore most of the world. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, you're not paying attention to what's going on in the country next to you in any real sense. So, for example, I mean, the fact that you're localized right here and right now means there's all sorts of things that you just physically can't attend to. But mm -hmm. even in the space you're in, you're basically blind to everything that isn't serving the purpose that you're aiming at. Mm -hmm. So that's worth thinking about. If you're blind to everything that isn't serving the purpose that you're aiming at and you can't see anything good, then one potential conclusion is that you're not aiming at the right thing because there's lots of things in the world that could manifest themselves to you. And I, and I really mean this physically. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a physical thing as well as a psychological thing. And so if all you see in the world is, is frustration, misery, cruelty, tragedy, and malevolence, and that's crushing you, then you, you can ask yourself, well, are you so certain that you're aiming at the right thing? Now, I'm not saying that all people suffering as a consequence of the inappropriateness of their aims. Mm -hmm. I think that's a big mistake because there's an, there's an arbitrary, there's an element of life that's sort of ineradicably um, arbitrary. Mm -hmm. you know, then that's... You mean the randomness of the universe, basically? Yeah, well, yeah. the fact that bad things happen to good people. It's, it's basically as simple as that. Or yeah. terrible things happen to good people, even. Mm -hmm. Or even that terrible things happen to bad people. There's a randomness element to it. And you don't want to get too high on your horse about that and assume that, you know, if something bad happened to you, it's because it's your fault. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's your fault. And sometimes there's something you could do to decrease the probability that that will happen again. But sometimes you're just, you know, you got hit by a bus and the bus jumped the curb and that's just how it is. But having said that, <laughs> you don't want to underestimate the degree to which you can change the way the world manifests itself to you by changing what you're aiming at. Mm -hmm. So then the question, of course, becomes, well, what should you aim at? And the first answer to that is, we should aim at something, right? Something, that's the first rule. Aiming at something is better than not aiming at something. Mm -hmm. 
So I, I, write, I wrote a fair bit about that in, in 12 Rules for Life too. Um, there's a rule in there that says compare yourself to um, who you were, you were yesterday instead of who someone else is today. That's something that you can aim at. Even if you don't know what's up, you might be able to think, or what direction up is, you might be able to think, well, you know, I, I'm reasonably aware of some of my flaws, and not flaws necessarily by other people's reckoning, although that too, mm -hmm. but flaws by your own, that you've identified by your own internal sense of orientation, things about yourself that you're dissatisfied with that you know you could change. It's mm -hmm. like, well, you could start changing those, like in small ways. That turns out to be way more powerful than people think. You, not only do you start to outline what your aims might be, but you also start to treat yourself like you're the sort of person who can have aims. And that's a real revelation for many people because they believe consciously or implicitly that life is something that happens to you. Mm -hmm. And fair enough, you know, there's an element sort of, of does, life that yeah. happens to you. But, but it doesn't life doesn't happen to you any more than when you're captaining a ship the ocean takes you where it wants to go, mm -hmm. right? Sometimes the ocean takes you where it wants to go, and sometimes that's to the bottom of the ocean. But if you have a seaworthy ship and you're a decent captain, then you can make your way across the ocean, even if there's a storm. Mm -hmm. And that's a good metaphor, that sailing metaphor. It's also why I think people love sailing so much, because <laughs> it, it has that metaphorical or metaphysical reality to it, as mm -hmm. well as being something practical. Plus the promise of bounty behind the horizon, probably, if you start moving towards a, a particular goal. Yeah, well, that's it. That's well, and, and it's also it's a it's a bounty that can increase as you progress towards it as well. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, I'd like things to be slightly better than they are today. Yeah. OK, well, then tomorrow will be a little better. And then what you're aiming at is a little, I wouldn't, grander, nobler, grander, both of those things. You've improved your position. And, mm. and that feels good in itself, and that gives you a sense of control, mm. I think. And a sense of hope, because if you've done it once, even a bit, you think, oh, well, I did it once, I can probably do that much again, maybe I could even do more, and maybe if I practiced hard for like 10 years, mm -hmm. I might get really good at this. And the thing is, people do get really good at it. They get amazingly good at it, and then you meet people now and then who, like, they're very astute captains of very powerful and fast ships you think well how do you get there it's well incrementally probably incre yes incrementally. Yeah. <laughs> you start with a raft yeah. and you start building towards right. that speedboat yeah. right exactly exactly and it helps to be healthy and it helps to it helps to not have tragedy befall you and all of those things you need you need good fortune you yeah. need you need you need to avoid the hurricanes to to keep the metaphor going. Although sometimes I wonder if that's... Exactly. Sometimes you need the hurricanes to become a better captain because a lot of the people that I've met that are really uh, highly focused and goal-oriented also have some past trauma uh, in their life that something happened to them that, that showed them that, well, life can be a bitch. And mm -hmm. um, sometimes it's rough. And that sort of hardened them to do the things mm -hmm. that they need to do in order to get to their goals yeah well, that's an a little bit better yeah that's an initiation process well it is really useful to know the difference between something terrible and something unfortunate you know and you need to have had a terrible experience before you can really distinguish between those two and then you have to learn that well it helps you learn what you should be worried about and what you shouldn't be mm -hmm. worried about but it also helps you know that you're tougher than you think you are we brought students in to the college during their orientation day in the middle of the summer and uh, 
we had them do their future authoring program where they lay out their vision for their friendships and their and their education and their career goals and their their the plan that they might want to implement to deal with temptations like drug and alcohol use and their use of free time uh, their productive use of free time and their and their physical and mental health and ask them to write about what their life could be like in three to five years if they were treating themselves properly and mm-hmm. and were on a good pathway and then also to write about how terrible their lives could be if they let their bad habits and the the effect of that even they only wrote for an hour the effect of that was that they were about 35 percent more likely to stay in school kind of notion of something like hell mm-hmm. um, that's very well developed in, 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 in Christianity. And so hell is where you end up when you lie. That's one way of thinking about it in a very good way. Um, you might think, well, is there any psychological utility in that idea? And, and the answer is, yeah, you need, to, you need to know where you could end up if things went wrong, because then you're motivated by fear mm-hmm. to move forward. If you're not motivated by fear to move forward, then your fear's in front of you stopping you. Because you might think, oh my God, I can't take the risks necessary to attain these goals. What if something goes wrong? Well, it's like, yeah, well then then you're frozen. But if you think, no, no, wait a second, there's risks to proceeding, but nothing compared to the risks of failing. Mm. So then the fear is behind you, pushing you forward. That's way, so you need a vision of hell. It's like, okay, what's your own, what's your personal vision of hell? You let your life fall apart because of your own stupidity and your own blindness. It's like near the worst place you could be in five years. Well, that's what we ask people to write about. That There's works. There's nothing like consulting your existential terror. You know, and you think, well, um, well, you know, I'd rather go out and party tonight. I shouldn't be working on this. I'd rather go out and party. It's like, well, why not? It's like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah. Arithmetic helps, too. In which this, sense? Well, this is something I've done with big groups of students um, and my clients as well. It's like, okay... I ask students in particular between the ages of, say, 18 and 20. Mm. It's like, well, how much time do you waste in a day? Is it an hour? And people say no. Is it like four hours? No. Ten? No. It's usually about six. I can get a group of 200 students to agree that they're just wasting six hours a day. No, And by their own definition of wasting, right? Mm-hmm. So, okay. So then we do some... We do some mathematics with that. We've got the six. That's fine. Six hours a day. Okay, so that's 40 hours a week. All right, so then I think, well, what's your time worth? And they think, well, minimum wage. Because, you know, most of the students, if they went out to work, they'd only get minimum wage. But that's not right because that's a discounted version. Mm-hmm. Their time is worth way more than that if they're working on something useful because it's an investment. So it's perfectly reasonable to assume that if you're a reasonably bright student, your time is worth $25 an hour, something like that because of its potential for future payoff. It's okay. Mm-hmm. Well, that's $1,000 a week. Right. So it's $4,000 a month. It's $50,000 a year. Mm-hmm. In four years, it's $200,000. So that's that's what wasting your day is costing you. It's like, let's make no mistake about it. You're going to be $200,000 poorer in four years because you're wasting your time. Is that is that really what you want to do? Mm-hmm. You, you, you're rich enough so that you're willing to forego that $200,000. Well, no one's ever sat them down and said, look, put an estimate out of the value of your time. Figure out how much of it you're wasting Mm -hmm. and then ask yourself if you really think that that's a good idea.
there's a city, and the city is full of people who are sinful. What does that mean? Well, to sin is an archery term. It means to miss the mark. So these are people who aren't oriented properly. And so the city is in a chaotic state. And God tells Jonah that he's going to go to that city and tell them just exactly what's up with them. And Jonah thinks, no, I'm not going to do that. And why? Well, that doesn't require much explanation. It's like, how popular are you going to be if you go to a city full of chaotic people and tell them why they're stupid and wrong? It's... Jonah thinks, no, I'm not going to do that. I don't care if God's telling me to do it. So his conscience is telling him to do it, or his destiny is telling him to do it, or, or his orientation with higher morality is telling him to do it. You can read it any way you want. And so he thinks, no, I'm hopping on this boat, and I'm getting as far away from that city as I possibly can. And so he does that, and then the storm comes up, because God thinks, no, you're not getting away. If I told you to do something, you're not getting away from it. A storm comes up. Well, what does that mean? Well, it's easy. Betray your destiny and see how long it takes you to be drowning in a storm. It'll happen immediately, and, and of course it will, because what, what's calling you to be your best is exactly the thing that's pushing you forward to manifest yourself most fully in the world. It's what you need. You run away from that, the boat's going to start to rock very, very quickly. Well, you all know that. You, per, you know that perfectly well. It, it, it's, hell, all you have to do is not study for an exam that you know that's coming up to see everything start to, the storm waters start to rise and everything start to rock. It's pretty bloody obvious. So anyways, he's on this boat and there's a storm. And all of the people on the boat who, who can't quite discriminate chaos from weather because they haven't differentiated the world to that degree think, oh, the boat wouldn't be about to be swamped if we hadn't, some of us hadn't done something stupid and wrong. And there's logic in that, you know, you might think, well, God has nothing personal against you because of the storm, so you're confusing levels of analysis, but you got to give these people some credit. It's like, maybe they did do something stupid. Maybe they didn't caulk the damn boat properly. Maybe the ropes aren't in as good a shape as they might be. Maybe they weren't paying attention to the weather when they went out on the ocean, you know? Or maybe they haven't made peace with their brother, and so their hearts are bent and twisted out of shape, so they don't make particularly good sailors. It's like the idea that you encounter a storm because you're stupid and wrong is a really good idea, even though it's not of infinite applicability. Anyways, they draw lots. It's a primitive thing to do. It's like, well, it's, one, it's someone's fault. We don't know who. We're going to throw someone overboard, the worst sinner. Obviously, that's what God wants, some kind of sacrifice. So they all draw lots, and someone loses. And then Jonah stands up and says, well, sorry, guys. Like, I know that I've got a problem with God at the moment, so it's probably me. You better throw me over. And they don't really want to, but he finally convinces them. Over he goes, and the storm settles. Well, you know, sometimes if you're in a group of people in an organization, there is someone in the organization whose head isn't screwed on exactly straight. And they know exactly why it is, and what they've done wrong, and what puts them in that position. And they are poisoning the entire enterprise. And if you throw them overboard, or better, if they agree voluntarily to leave, then the storm will abate and everything will be okay. So anyways, they throw jo Job over, or Jonah overboard, and a whale comes up and swallows him, and takes him down to the bottom of the ocean. Well, we already know what that means, because we watched Pinocchio. It's like, when God abandons you, because you've abandoned your destiny, and the storms come up, the probability that you're going to be taken down to the, to the depths 
is extraordinarily high and that happens in people's lives all the time well so down there Jonah repents well what do you do when you in the underworld well, you've been there before when things fall apart on you. your friends have abandoned you you're not as popular as you could be you can't stand to look at yourself in the mirror into the underworld you go and you think geez I've done a lot of things wrong you know maybe I should reconcile myself with the world and I could get out of this well so that's what Jonah does he thinks all right I've got this destiny I better go do what God says so the whale spits him out onto the beach and off he goes to the city to tell them what's wrong well that's what that represents that's these symbols you know it's so cool this second one I really I really like it's so interesting because you see Jonah re-emerging from the whale and he's got a halo around his head you say well what's a halo well have you ever looked at a quarter well think about a quarter a quarter is the moon and who's on the quarter? The queen. The queen is surrounded by the halo of the moon. The queen's queen of the queen of the night. Gold coin, that's the king's head on the sun. That's the halo. Well, what comes out of the belly of the of the fish? It's the illuminated human being. It's the spirit of the illuminated human being. Well, that's what that means. Well, what does that mean? Well, what else would come out of chaos? You know, if you, if you fall apart and then you put yourself back together, what is it that comes back out? Well, at least you're in better shape than you were before, you know? And, and then maybe you do that 20 times in your life or 50 times and you do it voluntarily. Every time you do it, you're more like the thing with the halo and less like the thing that's, you know, being thrown overboard by your friends. And the Midianites sold Joseph into Egypt unto Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh's and captain of the guard. And Joseph was brought down to Egypt. And Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him of the hands of the Ishmaelites, which had brought him down thither. So now he's a slave. So now you'd think, well, that would be... This is a man who has a lot of reason to be irritated at the structure of reality, right? He's gone from being the favorite to being betrayed by all of his brothers that's pretty rough and then he's being transformed into a slave and now he's being he's being sold to work as a slave so you'd think that that would corrupt his character because you know one of the things I think this is the case anyways I think people are always looking for an excuse to have their character corrupted because if your character is corrupted then you get to lie and you get to cheat and you get to steal and you get to betray and you get to act resentfully and you get to do nothing and that's all easy it's easier to lie than to tell the truth. It's easier to do nothing than to do something. So there's always part of you thinking, well, I need a justification for being useless and horrible because that, that'd be a lot less work. And so then if something terrible comes along, you think, aha, that's just exactly the excuse that I was waiting for. And then out all that comes. You know, Solzhenitsyn, when he was in the concentration camps in Russia, watching how people behaved, you know, he said that there were people that were put in the camps who immediately became trustees or guards and they were even more vicious than the people who had been hired as guards. And his idea was that they had collected all that, he called it foulness, if I remember correctly, around them in normal life. But they didn't have the opportunity to express it. But as soon as you gave them the opportunity, it was like, there it was, right away. And so, so one of the messages that seems to echo through these Old Testament stories is that just because something terrible happens to you doesn't mean that you get to be that you get to wander off the path and make things worse 
and maybe it doesn't matter how terrible it is that what happens to you. And that's a tough call, you know, because you see people now and then in life who they've really got it rough, man. Like 50 bad things are happening to them at the same time. And you think, oh, it's no wonder. If you were bitter and resentful and hostile, it'd be like, yeah, no wonder. But then you meet people, and Solzhenitsyn again talked about this in the Gulag Archipelago. He said he met lots of people in the, not lots, he met enough people to impress him in the concentration camp system who didn't allow their misfortunes to corrupt them. And that's something, man. Because maybe the only real misfortune is to become corrupted. That's a really useful thing to think. You know, maybe the rest of it, maybe the rest of it is trivial in comparison. I know that's a rough thing because you can be in very harsh circumstances, but I do think there's something to that. And the Lord was with Joseph, and he was a prosperous man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord made all that he did to prosper in his hand. So that's an echo of the idea that we encountered earlier about walking with God, right? So Adam walked with God before he ate the fruit with Eve, and then he wouldn't walk with God. And then Noah walked with God, and Abraham walked with God. And so the idea is, well, that's that alignment with the highest ideal. I think it's something like that. And you know, we can think about that as a metaphysical claim as well. But I don't think it is. I mean, I've got thousands of letters now in the last year from people who have told me that they were in a pit. That's exactly right. And that they decided that they were going to try to put their lives together. And that it worked. And so that's really something, you know. And they write surprised. It's like, well, I decided that I was going to work hard at what I was doing and I wasn't going to lie any more than absolutely necessary. I thought I'd give it a try for a few months, you know. And all sorts of good things started to happen to me. It's like, maybe that's how the world works. Now, obviously, it doesn't work like that all the time, right? Because you can get sliced off at the knees. I mean, there's an arbitrary element to existence that's, that you can't wish away. But that doesn't mean that there are it doesn't mean that there aren't bad strategies and good strategies. And so, I do think that one of the most fundamental existential questions is, like, if things aren't going well for you in your life is, are you absolutely certain that you're doing absolutely everything you can to put things in order? Because if you're not, then you shouldn't complain. Because you don't know to what degree you're actually contributing or even causing the circumstance. Now that's a very annoying thing to think, and I'm not trying to blame the victim. You know, I know that people end up with lung cancer because they were exposed to asbestos, you know. I'm, I'm not trying to, although I also know too that if you have lung cancer because you've been exposed to asbestos, that can be a tragedy or it can be hell, and to some degree that depends on how you conduct yourself. Well, if you're harmless, you're not virtuous. You're just harmless. You're like a rabbit. A rabbit isn't virtuous. It's just, it just can't do anything except get eaten. It's not virtuous. If you're a monster and you don't act monstrously, then you're virtuous. But you also have to be a monster. Well, you see this all the time. Harry Potter's like that too. It's like he's, he's flawed, he's hurt, he's got evil in him. He can talk to snakes, man. He breaks rules all the time. All the time. He's not obedient at all. But, you know, he has a good reason for breaking the rules. And, it, and if he couldn't break the rules, him and his little clique of rule-breaking, you know, troublemakers, if they didn't break the rules, they wouldn't attain the highest goal. So it's very peculiar, but it's, it's very, very, it's a very, 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 very common 
mythological notion. You know, the hero has to be, the hero has to be a monster, but a controlled monster. Batman is like that, you know, I mean, it's, it's everywhere. It's, it's, it's the story you always hear. One question is, you know, you're kind of implicitly moral insofar as you're socialized. But that's sort of procedural, it's just built into you. This is different, this is also becoming conscious of it. And expanding out your personality into dimensions that it wouldn't normally occupy. So, this happens to people all the time. So, for example, lots of my clients, my clinical clients, are too agreeable. And um, they're generally women, because women are more agreeable than men. But not always, because I've had agreeable men as clients as well. And what happens is, they, they're resentful and, and they don't know how to stand up for themselves. And it's because they're very compassionate by nature, and so if you're entering into a negotiation with them, they'll let you win. Well, that's not so good, because you know, you need to win too. Especially if you're in an organization of adults, where there's, there's a struggle, right? With, when you have kids, you can let them win, especially infants, you're like you have to let them win, and that's partly why compassion is so necessary. But as a, as a basis for negotiation between adults, it's like, Sorry, it's, it's insufficient. You have, to, you have to be a bit of a monster so that you can say no. And so a lot of what you do in, in psychotherapy is treat people's anxiety and depression. That's a huge chunk of it. Help them straighten out the way they think. That's a huge chunk of it. But another chunk of it is, well, let's toughen you up. You know, let's put you in a position where you can bargain. Let's teach you how to assert yourself and stand up for yourself. And that's assertiveness training. And it's a huge chunk of psychotherapy. And you need to, you need to learn it. It's like... Because part of how you regulate your interactions with other people is to negotiate. And you cannot negotiate unless you can say no. You can't do it. And it causes conflict to say no. And if you don't like conflict, which is basically the definition of being agreeable, then you can't tolerate the conflict. And so then you can't negotiate on your own behalf. And so then you keep losing and you're bullied and, you know, it's, it's not good. Then you get resentful and, and it's really not good. So you have to develop your inner monster a little bit and and then that makes you a better person not a worse person you can it isn't so straightforward to determine what our place is in the, in the world and the thing that really got me with regards to that wasn't the good that we could do but the harm that we can do because you can debate about the good we can do but you cannot debate about the harm we can do. That's done. We know. If we want to know. And I think my experience was when I took that seriously, which meant understanding how that was about me, you know, about that Auschwitz was about me and that the Stalinist camps were about me, then, well, that reorients you. That's a deep part of the shadow idea, right? I mean, and I think that is part of the idea of taking the sins of the world onto yourself. It's like you're a human being, so you see what human beings do, that's you. And you might say, well, I'd never do that. It's like, don't be so sure about that. In fact, you're, the probability that you're wrong is extraordinarily high. It isn't self-evident that the default position is heroism in the face of the advance of evil. In fact, quite the contrary. So it's highly probable that you would be on the side of the 
weak who are transformed into oppressors. And that's a very terrifying realization if you, if you take it seriously, which you should. And I do believe that we, if we don't take that with sufficient seriousness, we are not going to survive because we're too powerful to be naive. You know, and that was something that Jung insisted on, especially after the invention of the hydrogen bomb in particular. It's like, if you're going to play with fire, you better be a master of fire. What are the prerequisites for true knowledge and understanding? Because it seems to me that intelligence is only a small matter of seeing and understanding properly, and it takes a certain amount of moral courage it takes a certain amount of having done the work of introspection, having done the work of deep introspection. What do you think the, the components are for true knowledge and understanding? Well, I think, I think the motivation, one of the best motivations is existential terror. You know, I mean, I don't remember where this is in the Old Testament, but the line is, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And that's definitely psychologically true. But but we could strip it, say, of its transcendent implications and say, well, if for me, anyways, I wasn't motivated to be serious until I knew what I was capable of in the most negative way. Because you don't take yourself seriously until you know that you can be, you are uh, an evil monster. And you don't take that seriously until you know what that means. And so, but once you know what that means, especially if you do it, if you find that out consciously, say, then you're in a position to start taking yourself seriously enough so that you might be willing to learn what you need to learn to become wise. You have to see yourself as an Auschwitz camp guard, and you have to see yourself enjoying it. And that can't just be an exercise in intellectual simulation, precisely. It has to be a dramatic experience. You have to feel that in your bones. And then you have to decide, and you have to give the devil his due. There's something very attractive about predatory power. And you might even say that it's preferable to pathetic weakness. Now, I'm not saying that, but you could make a case that it is. Um, because you could say that the person who's pathetically weak would like to be a predatory tyrant, but just doesn't have the ability. And that's, well, that's a Nietzschean criticism of standard morality, I would say. But then, is there something higher than predatory power? Well, yes. Part of Christ's encounter with Satan in the desert is precisely that realization, because he's offered the kingdom of the world, and, and that means he's offered the option of tyrannical power. And his response to that is, there's something better, and that's wisdom. There is something better, and there's no reason not to go for what is the best. What else? You don't have anything better to do than that by definition, right? So why not work for the betterment of being and abandon your resentment and your hatred of humanity and your self-contempt and, and take on the responsibility of the horrors and 
and catastrophes of, of human existence and do what you can to, well, at least not make it worse, but maybe to make it better. You know you can. You know you can make it worse and better. You just don't know how much. Find out. It might be way more than you think. I, I'm, I'm sure that's the case. So there isn't any more in, interesting adventure than that. You know, find out how much good you can do in the world. And, and, not, in the, and not in this moralistic, thou shalt not way. But in a forthright, noble, courageous, eyes wide open, articulate, embodied manner. And then God only knows where we could get. So let's see. Let's find out. That would be good. It's certainly better than the alternative. Every single person who sets out to put themselves together ethically is a net positive to everyone around them. There's no downside yes. to that. You know, and I, my book has been criticized by people who've read it very poorly, especially chapter one when I talk about hierarchies, that I'm somehow supporting the idea that power in a hierarchy is the right way to be. And that's there's absolutely nothing in what I've written that suggests that at all. Like I'm suggesting that human hierarchies are very complex and that the way that you win in a human hierarchy is by being competent and reciprocal. And so, and so I mean, for example, even if you're selfish, let's say, you got to think very carefully about what that would mean if you were selfish and awake, because you have to work to take care of yourself and what you want, say, in this moment, but then there's you tomorrow, and there's you next week, and there's you next month, and next year, and 10 years from now, and when you're old. So because you're self-conscious and because you're aware of the future, you're actually a community unto yourself. And if you're selfish and impulsive, all that means is that you're serving the person you are right now, you know, in that impulsive way, but not the person you're going to be. And so that's not a good grounds for any sort of ethical behavior. And I see that if you serve yourself properly, there's no difference between that and serving your family properly and serving your community properly. That Those things all mesh in a kind of a harmonious manner. And one of the things that's really been effective in the lecture tour is a discussion about that idea and its relationship between the relationship between that and meaning and responsibility. Because one of the things that strikes the audience as silent constantly because I'm always listening to them to see you know when when the attention is maximally focused is whenever I point out to people that the antidote to the meaninglessness of their life and the suffering and the malevolence that they might be displaying because they're resentful and bitter about how things have turned out the antidote to that is to take on more responsibility for themselves and for other people and that that's aspirational which is kind of cool you know the conservative types the duty types, and I'm not complaining about them, you know, they're always basically saying, well, this is how you should act, because in some sense, that's your duty, right? That's how a good citizen would act. And that's a reasonable argument. But the case that I've been making is more that, well, there is a there is value distinctions between things. Some things are worth doing and some things aren't. And you can kind of discover what that is for yourself. And then you should aim at the things that are most worth doing. And what you'll find if you watch carefully is that the things that you find worth doing are almost always associated with an Im 
increase in responsibility. Because if you think about the people you admire, for example, you spontaneously admire people, and that's a manifestation of the instinct to imitate. Again, people are very imitative. You don't admire people who don't take care of themselves. Like, unless there's something wrong with you, you, you at least want an admirable person to be accountable for themselves. And then if they've got something left over so they can be accountable for their family, well, then that's a net plus, obviously. That's someone you think is solid. And then maybe they take care of some more people. They have a business or they're involved in the community in some positive way. You see, well, that's a person whose pattern of being is worth imitating. And so, and that's all associated with responsibility. And it's so interesting because it's as if, it's as if everybody kind of knows this, but that it hasn't crystallized. It's like, well, you should be responsible because that's what a good citizen is. It's not, no, no, you should be responsible because you need to have a deep meaning in your life to offset the suffering so you don't get bitter. And the way you do that is to bear a heavy load, you know, to get yourself in, in check for you now and for you in the future and then to do the same for your family and your community and that there's real nobility in that and there's real meaning and more the other thing that i've been suggesting to people and i also believe this is that and i think that the guys that have come to talk to me especially the ones that have had real real rough lives they really understand this if you don't get your act together and you let yourself slide then what kind of moves in to take the place of what you could have been is something that's really not good at all so it's not only that if you're living a like a dissolute life that you're not aiming at anything positive and so you don't have any real meaning and you're subsumed by anxiety and all of that and hopelessness but something kind of hellish moves in there too to to occupy that place and so then you end up making things worse and when you know one of the things i learned about studying totalitarian systems whether they were on the right or the left was that part of the reason that the totalitarian horrors of the 20th century manifested themselves was because average people didn't take on the proper responsibility. They shut their eyes when their eyes should have been open, even though they knew it. And they didn't said things they knew they shouldn't have done and said. And that was what supported those horrible systems. So, you know, if you don't get your act together, then you leave a little space for hell. And I really believe that. So I figured something out that I okay. thought I'd tell you about. This took me like 30 years to figure out, and I figured it out on this tour. So there's this old idea, you know, that you have to rescue your father from the belly of the whale, right? From some mm -hmm. monster that's deep in the abyss. You see that in Pinocchio, for example, but it's a very common idea. And I figured out why that is, I think. So imagine that we already know from a clinical perspective that, you know, if you set out a path towards a goal, which you want to do because you need a goal and you need a path because mm -hmm. that provides you with positive emotion, right? So you, you set up something as valuable, so that implies a hierarchy. You set up something as valuable. You decide that you're going to do that instead of other things, so that's kind of a sacrifice because you're sacrificing everything else to pursue that. And then you experience a fair bit of positive emotion and meaning as you watch yourself move towards the goal. And so the implication of that is the the better the goal, the 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 more full and rich your experience is going to be when you pursue it. So that's one of the reasons of, of that's one of the reasons for developing a vision and for fleshing yourself out philosophically because you want to aim at the highest goal that you can manage. Okay, so you do that, and then what you'll find is that as you move towards the goal, there are certain things that 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 you have to accomplish that frighten you. You know, maybe you have to learn to be a better speaker, a better writer, a better thinker. Or you have to be better to people around you, or you have to learn some new skills, and you're afraid of that. Whatever, because it's going to stretch you if you if you pursue a goal, and it's and so that'll put you up against challenges. Okay, so all the clinical 
data indicates, well, the opposite of safe spaces, as Jonathan Haidt has been pointing out, that what you want to do when you identify something that someone is avoiding, that they need to do, because they're afraid, you have them voluntary, con voluntarily confronted. And so you break it down. What you try to do if you're a behavior therapist is you break down the thing they're avoiding into smaller and smaller pieces until you find a piece that's small enough so they'll do it. And it doesn't really matter as long as they start it. You know, then they can put the next piece on and the next piece. And what happens is they don't get less afraid exactly. They get braver. They get, they get it's like there's more of them. And, you can, and then here's why. So imagine you do something new and that's informative right there's information in the action and then you can incorporate that information and turn it into a skill and turn it into a transformation of your perceptions so there's more to you because you've tried something new so that's one thing but the second thing is and there's good biological evidence for this now that if you put yourself in a new situation then new genes code for new proteins and build new neural structures and new nervous system structures same thing happens to some degree when you work out right because you're your muscles are responding to the load, but your nervous system does that too. So you imagine that there's a lot of potential you locked in your genetic code. And then if you put yourself in a new situation, then then the stress, that's the situational stress that's produced by that particular situation unlocks those genes and then builds new parts of you. And so that's very cool because who knows how much there is locked inside of you. Okay, so now here's the idea. So... Let's assume that that scales as you take on heavier and heavier loads. That more and more of you, you get more and more informed because you're doing more and more difficult things, but more and more of you gets unlocked. And so then what that would imply is that if you got to the point where you could look at the darkest things, so that would be the abyss, right? That would be the deepest abyss. If you could look at the harshest things, like the most brutal parts of the suffering of the world and the malevolence of people and society if you could look that look at that straight and and directly that that would turn you on maximally and so that's the idea of rescuing your father because imagine that you're like the potential composite of of all your all the ancestral wisdom that's locked inside of you biologically but that's not going to come out at all unless you stress yourself unless you unless you challenge yourself and the bigger the challenge you take on the more that's going to turn on and so that as you take on a broader and broader range of challenges and you push yourself harder then more and more of what you could be turns on and that's equivalent to transforming yourself into the ancestral father into all because you're you're like the what would you call it you're the consequence of all these living beings that have come before you and that's all part of your biological potentiality and then if you can push yourself then all of that clicks on and that turns you into who you could be that's and that's the re-representation of that positive ancestral father so that's why you rescue your father from the belly of the beast the two major problems that people face obviously are suffering tragedy and malevolence and so that's the other thing that you're responsible for is that you're supposed to look at the capacity for human evil as clearly as you possibly can, which is a very terrifying thing. You know, that causes post-traumatic stress disorder in people that aren't accustomed to it. And in the mythology that's associated with the encounter with evil, it's almost always the case that the entity that does the encountering, even if it does it voluntarily, is, is, is 
hurt by it. So the Egyptian god Horus, for example, who's the eye and the falcon, the thing that can see and pay attention. When he encounters his evil uncle, Seth, who's the precursor of Satan, he loses an eye. Because it's no joke to encounter malevolence. You know, it, it can really shake you. But the idea would be that if you can face the malevolence and you can face the suffering, then that maximally that opens the door to your maximal potential. And then the, op the optimistic part of that is, and this is, this is why it's so useful to peer into the darkness, let's say, the op optimistic part of that is, is that although the suffering is great and the malevolence is, is deep, your capacity to transcend it is stronger. Here's an example of the Pareto distribution. Uh, you know, there's a rule of thumb that if you run a company that 20% of your employees do 80% of the work, or that 20% of your customers are responsible for 80% of your sales, or that 20% of them are responsible for 80% of the customer service calls. Same thing. But that's not exactly the rule. The rule is worse than that. The rule is, in a given domain, the square root of the number of people operating in that domain do half the productive work. So you think, well, you have 10 employees, three of them do half the work. It's like, yeah, okay. What if you have 100 employees? Then 10 of them do half the work. What if you have 1,000 employees? Well, then it's 30. And if it's 10,000 employees, then it's 100. And this actually turns out to be a rather ironclad rule. It, it, it applies across very, very many situations. It, it applies, for example, to the mass of stars and the size of cities. So you can see how universal it is as a law, and it's, it's something like those that have more get more, and those that have less get less. That's the Matthew principle, right? To those who have everything, more will be given. From those who have nothing, everything will be taken away. And the economists sometimes call that the Matthew principle. And so what, what that lays out is a world that's rife with inequality. So you know, you, you hear this idea that I think it's the 85 richest people in the world have more money than the bottom two billion. That's a Pareto distribution phenomena. And you might say, uh, to hell with capitalism for producing that. It's like, sorry, you got your diagnosis wrong. It's a natural law. It's no, no matter what society you study, you get a Pareto distribution of wealth. You get a Pareto distribution of number of records recorded. You get a Pareto distribution of number of songs written or goals scored. Like any creative product has that characteristic. And it's partly because as you start to become successful, let's say, people offer you more and more opportunities. And as you start to fail, people move away from you and you plummet. And so, okay, so that's rough. So what it is, what it means is that there is always a landscape of inequality. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't do anything about it. Although I am saying that we don't know what to do about it. That's the thing, you know, because you can modify the Pareto distribution of wealth, let's say, but if you, but we don't know how to do it without maybe disrupting the system so completely that it collapses, which is what happened in the Soviet Union, for example, and, and in Maoist China. They were trying, at least in principle, to adjust inequality. But the cure was far worse than the disease. And the, the truth of the matter is, we actually don't know technically how much inequality there has to be to generate wealth. We can guess, and you could say, well, there should be less, and you might say, well, there should be more. If you're left-wing, you'd say less, and if, if you're right-wing, you'd say, well, we'll just let the inequality flourish. But we do know that it's inevitable, and we also know that we don't know how to regulate it. So, there is inequality. What that means is there's always going to be people around that are better at something than you are. And, the, and that's, a, that's a problem, because you can get jealous, and you can get bitter, and you can get resentful, and worse, you can get hopeless.
I have this, this friend of mine. He told me something so funny. Um, he, was, he was decrying his, his lack of success in the world. And he compared himself to his roommate. And uh, he said, you know, his roommate, his college roommate was doing much better than he was. And his bloody roommate was Elon Musk. It's like, <laughs> really? Like, it's like, oh, you're not doing as well as Elon Musk. Well, it's, I mean, you can see it would take it rather personally because they were roommates and everything. It wasn't like he was doing badly. Like, he was doing pretty damn well. It's like, I'm not as good as Elon Musk. It's like, yeah, well, you and like seven billion other people, you know. But, but I thought it was instructive because, well, because you have to be careful who you compare yourself to. Now, you can't just not compare yourself to others, to successful people, right? Because then you don't have anything to aim at. And one of the things I learned from Jung, this was a cool thing, I'm going to make a real lateral move here. Jung thought the book of Revelation was appended to the Bible because the Christ in the Gospels was too merciful. He was too nice a guy. Now, he's an ideal, right? And Jung said, wait a second, an ideal is always a judge. That's the thing about an ideal, because you're not as good as your ideal, so your ideal is a judge. And Revelation has Christ coming back as a judge. And that was Jung's explanation at the level of the collective unconscious for the pasting of that remarkably strange and terrible book onto the end of the, of the, of the, of the Bible. So, well, anyways, my point is, is an ideal is it, you need an ideal because you have nothing to aim at, but an ideal is a judge, and you always fall short of the ideal. So how the hell can you have the benefits of having an ideal without having the crushing blow that goes along with having the judge that always regards you as insufficient. So I was trying to work that out in the chapter, and this is something I've had to work out a lot as a clinical psychologist. It's like, well, let's say you need a goal, but we don't want to let your distance from the goal crush you. So you got to set up a goal, and then you got to make the goal, break the goal down into parts so that you can move towards it, and you have a fairly high likelihood of doing it. So that, that's a bit, bit of practical, I wouldn't say advice, it's, it's, because it's better than advice. It's, it's some practical knowledge about how to go about achieving an aim. Set a high aim, but differentiate it down so you know what the next step is, and then make the next step difficult enough so you have to push yourself past where you are, but, but also provide yourself with a reasonable probability of success. It's also what you do with children, right? You, you want to push them because they need to grow up and be more than they are, right? But you don't want to crush them with constant failure. So what you do is aim high and make the goal difficult but proximal. So anyways, so that's one, 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 one way of looking at it. But then the next thing is, you know, uh, I've, I've, I've had clients, many clients in their 30s, who are trying to, this is more true with women, I would say. A lot of women who are very high achieving and who established their career goals at 30, and then want to differentiate out, their, differentiate out their life. They want to have a husband, they want to have a family, they're trying to figure out how to do that. And one of the things I've noticed that around 30, you really have to stop comparing yourself in some ways to other people. And the reason for that is that the particularities of your life are so idiosyncratic that there isn't anyone really all that much like you, you know, because the details of your life happen to matter. And so maybe you compare yourself to some rock star or something like that and, you know, the person's rich and famous and glamorous and all that, but, you know, they're alcoholic and they use too much cocaine and they've had three divorces and it's like, how the hell do you make sense out of that? Is that someone that you should judge yourself harshly against or not? The answer is you don't know because you don't know all the details of their lives. And who do you know that you can compare yourself to? That's easy. You. Yesterday. So here's a good goal, it's something like, well, aim high, 
And I, I really mean that. It's like, and we'll talk about that a little bit too. Aim high, but use as your control yourself. It's like, so your goal is to make today some tiny increment better than yesterday. And you can use better, you can define better yourself. This doesn't have to be some imposition of external morality. You know, you know where you're weak and insufficient, where you could improve. Think, okay, well, this is what I'm like yesterday. If I did this little thing, things would be just a, an increment better. And, well, that's a great thing because you get the ball rolling and incremental improvement is unstoppable. You can actually implement it, and it starts to generate Pareto distribution-like consequences. It starts to compound. And I've seen that happen in people's lives over and over. People write me all the time and tell me that they're doing that, but I've seen that happen to, in people's lives continually. They make a goal, a goal that, the goal should be, how could I conceive of my life so that if I had that life, it would clearly be worth living, so I wouldn't have to be bitter, resentful, deceitful, arrogant, and vengeful. Like, that's sort of the bottom line, right? Because that's what endless failure does to you. It's not good. And, and, and that's what life without purpose and a goal does to you as well, because life is very hard. So you think, okay, well, I need to adopt a mode of being that would justify my suffering. And you can ask yourself that question. What would make this worthwhile? Nietzsche, I, I quote Nietzsche, I think, in that chapter. He said, he who has a why can bear almost any how. That's a lovely line, man. I mean, it's a lovely line. And, and it's really worth thinking about. So you think, well, how, how do I manage all this misery and suffering and futility? It's like, well, I need to figure out what I would have to do in order to make that clearly worthwhile. And so then you have your goal and then you think, well, I need to move towards that incrementally because I'm kind of useless and can only do so much and maybe not even that. And, but all I have to do is be a little bit better than my, my miserable self yesterday. And that'll propel you forward very rapidly and, and you can succeed at it, which is also really lovely because why not set yourself up for success, you know, because otherwise you'll droop around like a number 10 lobster and, you know, that's just not good. You get all pinchy when that happens and it's not a good thing. There's this cat that lives across the street from us called Ginger and Ginger's a Siamese cat and cats really aren't domesticated, eh? technically speaking, they're still wild animals, but they kind of like people. God only knows why, but they do, you know. And so Ginger will come wandering over, and our dog looks at her, but they're friends. And, and then she'd kind of mosey over and let you pet her if she was feeling like it that day. And, you know, you have to look for those little bit of, that little bit of sparkling crystal in the darkness when things are bad. You have to look and see where things are still beautiful and where there's still something that's sustaining. And, you know, you narrow your time frame, and you be grateful for what you have. And, that can get you through some very dark times and maybe even successfully if you're lucky but even if unsuccessfully then maybe it's only tragic and not absolute hell and you can do that you know in the worst situation you can make it only tragic and not hell and there's a big gap between tragedy and hell you know there's nothing worse at a deathbed than to see the people there fighting the death is bad enough but you can take that, as terrible as it is, and make it into something that's absolutely unbearable. And maybe I think, and this is sort of what I closed the book with, is this idea is that if we didn't all attempt to make terrible things even worse than they are, then maybe we could tolerate the terrible things that we have to put up with in order to exist. And maybe we could make the world into a better place, you know? And it's what we should be doing and what we could be doing because we don't have anything better to do. And that's what the book is about. And 
that's the end of 12 Rules for Life. Thank you.